turn our attention to what might be called the libertarian left, or more popularly, anarchism. This is the same logic shared by Marx and Freud. Functioning libertarian socialist institutions, I think they are an interesting model that uh, I think is highly relevant. We went to the Tate Britain the other day, didn't we? Yeah, it was fabulous. We had an amazing time. Yeah. The opening. Yeah, it was really good. New experiences. It was good. <laughs> we sat in the sun outside. Yeah, yeah, roses. Oh, yeah, it was good. We went to the Queer and Now Fest that was on a few weeks ago now, wasn't it? Mm. And it was really good. It was really nice. And there was loads of events. It mm -hmm. took a lot of effort to put together. Mm -hmm. So if they have another one in the future, which they should do, because they're really, really popular, but you never know with all the transphobia in the UK, <gasps> making these kinds of things difficult. But you should be able to go next year if you would mm. like but hello 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 everybody welcome to i think it's the 14th episode of theory-ish i know we've done loads <laughs> you might miss a voice paula is not going to be here for this episode but we'll be back again next episode because she is just coming back from a trip to go see family in Ohio and Puerto Rico. And she was, it has literally just come back like last Wednesday. And so I didn't want to <laughs> force her to do reading <laughs> in her very jet lag state. But you might hear somebody who you heard last episode, mm -hmm. which is Dipak Panchel. If you want to give us a little intro to yourself for those who didn't hear our Du Bois episode, which we really recommend as like a precursor to this one. <laughs> yeah, my name is Nipak and I'm at Warwick Uni doing my PhD in sociology, looking at policing and the police in particular, how the idea of the police officer is formed, how their identity is formed when they interact with the uniform so when the officer or the person puts on the uniform and becomes this this police officer how their sense of identity is influenced changed altered develops depending on whether this body is racialized or not whether it is gendered or not whether there is a sexuality that is imbued within this uniform and how that is interpreted by the person that's wearing it so i'm looking at these things from the officer's point of view the intersections so yeah that's my work in cool. a nutshell thank you <laughs> no um you also have something happening people won't uh, be able to see it because this will be out afterwards but you're also mm. doing something i don't know what day the 7th this is week? friday yeah this friday i'm doing a conference on gendered ethnographies with the police so this is ethnographic work with the police and the challenges that are faced for example, the positionality of the ethnographer when they are in company with other police officers in the policing environment, how their positionality, how this person impacts, influences the police, but the other way around, how the research, the ethnography is influenced by this person's presence, which may seem simplistic, but when we take into account gender, sexuality, race, the performativity, the performance of the ethnographer in terms of how they look, how they present themselves, how they talk, 
how they interact, then it becomes all the more complex. For example, if I put on painted nails and, I don't know, earrings or something in my police ethnography, it will encourage a different reaction from the police, I anticipate. And so those are the kinds of things that are discussed or at least covered in some way, shape or form at this ethnographic workshop. By the time this comes out, it will all be over and dusted, but um, perhaps there'll be another one. Who knows? And if there's not another one, Dipik's doing like incredible work everywhere, so just keep an eye out. So today... We are here. Like I said, the Du Bois episode is a real interesting precursor to this, especially because Stuart Hall was commented as being like the Du Bois of Britain. So it's an interesting kind of link mm. there. But yeah, today we're looking at Stuart Hall's book or kind of series of lectures more so called The Fateful Triangle, Race, Ethnicity and Nation. And... It's going to be an interesting one today because we read the first chapter, which is called Race, the Sliding Signifier. And so we read that and then we read like a little additional piece just to kind of wrap up this session today. But yeah, it's quite a dense and very interesting chapter. I don't know how you found it, Dipper. It's detailed. It's, it is dense. Um, it's comprehensive, but it covers very interesting ground. I like its reference to Du Bois and Henry Louis Gates. Yeah, so like what today is going to be is kind of just unpacking some of the nuances and complexities of this chapter and yeah, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> and I'm going to give a little introduction to Stuart Hall and then I'm going to give a little introduction to the text as well, just so you have some of the contextual information. So Stuart Hall is kind of like a powerhouse in the areas of like race and cultural studies and politics and art and representation. You know, he was really doing it all. <laughs> and he is Jamaican British, so he was born in Kingston in 1932. And he died in London, aged 82, February 2014, so not that long ago. And he was, you know, an academic writer and cultural studies pioneer. Just to give a little overview of, like, cultural studies, because I don't think we've introduced this concept in the podcast. It okay. is kind of its own area. It was developed in kind of post-war UK, and it is a field that is interdisciplinary so loads of disciplines feed into cultural studies you get things like sociology history anthropology literary criticism philosophy and art criticism are kind of the main ones and these are really concerned with the place of race ethnicity class and gender in the production of cultural knowledge so it Cultural studies is essentially trying to figure out and investigate the ways in which cultures are produced and produce things. So very, very broad. This is why so many things like fit into it. It was originally identified with the Centre for Contemporary Cultural Studies at the University of Birmingham, which I believe was founded in 1964. And it's also associated with scholars such as Richard Hogarth, uh, Stuart Hall and Raymond Williams. And so, yeah, that's a little overview, overview on cultural studies. 
Um, he was also a Rhodes Scholar at Merton College, Oxford. He was also the director of the Birmingham Centre for Contemporary Cultural Studies. He was also professor of sociology at the Open University. So he was like very interdisciplinary, I would say. He also presented a number of TV programmes, including BBC series Redemption Song, uh, which was a 1991 seven-part series that looked at various historical cultural legacies of the Caribbean. Like I said, he was the president of the British Sociological Association. Uh, he was member of the Runnymede Commission on the Future of Multi-Ethnic Britain. He chaired arts organisations. Two of note are Ineva, which was a visual arts organisation that was about nurturing and disseminating radical and emergent contemporary artistic practice that centred global majority African, Asian and Caribbean diaspora perspectives. And also ABP, which was all about photography and film to highlight race representation, human rights and social justice. He was the first editor of the New Left Review and he gets associated with the New Left quite a lot. He was the founding editor of Journal Soundings and he authored so many articles and books. He is literally everywhere when you want to look at, especially like British politics and culture, he is everywhere here. This includes things like policing the crisis, mugging the state and law and order in 1978, and the great moving right show, which was for Marxism today in 1979. Interestingly, he coined the term Thatcherism. Thatcherism is the political and economic policies advocated by Margaret Thatcher, which was the British Conservative Prime Minister, and it also talks about privatisation, trade union legislation. So he's he's also coined like many other words, I just didn't know he had coined that one, so I thought it interesting to bring up. But Dipak, any other comments on Stuart Paul Hall? Paul Gilroy was his student. Oh, he was a doctoral student working with Stuart Hall. So yeah. that's really cool. So there's a bit of a lineage going on here. And I think something that's maybe a little bit off the wall is that Stuart Hall also ventured into trying to run some sort of cafe as a business venture, but I think it it, it failed, so he's not so good at making coffee. <laughs> the Partisan Coffee House. It was made by radical historian Raphael Samuel and cultural theorist Stuart Hall. I love that, that they tried to bring the, like... <laughs> coffee culture yeah yeah of like ideas developing yeah, in the coffee exchange houses. i think yeah that they tried that. yeah <laughs> yeah a bit like there was this intellectual square going on in in london where ucl is and mm-hmm. back back anyway so these are kind of random <laughs> random things <laughs> Stuart Hall was being just iconic all yeah. over the place. <laughs> yeah. So another question I kind of wanted to ask you, Dipak, is what is your familiarity with Stuart Hall's work? Stuart Hall's work is extensive. It's not something I could say, I'm familiar with Stuart Hall's work. I'm, I'm familiar with certain aspects of it and appreciate his work. I'm familiar with the floating signifier. I'm familiar with some of his work on race, on cultural studies, media, crime. I'm familiar with his book. Policing the Crisis, Mugging the State. Yeah, Yeah. where the offence of mugging came about and Stuart Hall critiqued it. Robbery, Um, the euphemism being mugging, at least that's how it was interpreted in the 80s. So I'm familiar with the criminological aspect of Stuart Hall's work. 
that work resonates with me. And as I speak about that, the song Past the Duchy on the Left Hand Side by Musical Youth comes to mind because that was in the 1980s. That song was banned at my school. We weren't allowed to sing it. If we were found or heard singing it, we'd get detention. Mm. So that's the kind of thing that Stuart Hall's work connects with in my mind. The main thing that I have, I guess, familiarised myself with Stuart Hall, it's Stuart Hall, again, is like one of those people who's just like floating around who everybody references, but I'm more familiar with his theories of representation and how he kind of moved understandings of representation. So say like a film or I guess he speaks more about news stories. News stories are not representing an essential truth. They are showing multiple truths mm. or understandings of representation. And also there, there's another word for it, but essentially they constitute meaning around the representation. So they're not just like the thing happens, it's being represented and you see it. There's also a meaning making pattern that's going in there. So that's really interesting because I use representation and stuff in my own work. But the exact text that we are looking at today, as I said before, was a 2017 book. So it was put together after he died, but it's work drawn from lectures that he delivered at Harvard University in 1994. So he discusses power relations that permeate race, ethnicity, and nationhood. We are only looking at one of these lectures today, so we might look at more in the future. I know Paula's particularly keen on understanding Stuart Hall a bit more. And he also looks in this book about how oppressed groups broke apart kind of old hierarchies of difference in Western culture. So how things like migration and the forced movement of people starts to disrupt this understanding of hierarchy within Western cultures. He also thinks about how race has been understood from the Renaissance to the Enlightenment as this fixed, unchangeable thing. But actually, he showcases kind of how blackness becomes redefined numerous times and how identities and attitudes are constituted through language itself. He talks specifically around, as well, race being seen and blackness being seen as a sign of solidarity for Caribbean and South Asian migrants who fought against discrimination in the 1980s in Britain. Connecting back to last episode, there's lots of discussions of Du Bois in this particular chapter. He's drawing a lot on or trying to connect his own existence and understanding to kind of how Du Bois was trying to imagine race. So yeah, I've kind of asked it already, but how did you find reading this chapter? It needs groundwork. So when Stuart Hall is writing, you can't just read it on its own with these works. You have to make references to connections when he's talking about Foucault, Derrida, he talks about Fanon, he talks about Appiah's work. There are all these references that he's making and drawing from. You need to at least have touched upon these various um, noted people in order to understand the argument that Hall is making, which is powerful in and of itself. But when you include these other references, then you start to see the multifaceted richness and the power of Hall's argument. He makes a very strong, compelling argument. And I think one of the things that strikes me about Hall's work is that, yep, yeah, it is contemporary, but like Du Bois, I feel as if there is a longevity in the work. Like like you were saying, it's really 
well done. I find Sara Ahmed writes kind of similar to how I see Stuart Hall writing, which is starting with a certain concept or theory and then building on that and then building and then building again. So essentially at the end, it becomes more and more complex and kind of multifaceted and, and interesting. But like you were saying, I guess one of the difficulties maybe with getting into Stuart Hall's work is having to understand all these different concepts. He does like lay them out and lay his references out really clearly. And he doesn't use too much. Like it's not unnecessary throwing mm. references in no. there for the sake of throwing them in there. They all do something really important. So if you want to like unpack it, I guess that's kind of what we're going to do today is mm. break down some of these theories and concepts and people he's drawing from to give you a understanding of his concept of race as a sliding or floating signifier, as he later calls it. And even just what does a sliding signifier mean? What does mm. it mean to have a signifier? So to start with then, I think it's nice and helpful to outline what he means by two terms that he uses very liberally and he even announces that he's going to use like one of them liberally. Mm. So he uses discourse and discursive. And discourse he uses in his own particular way but I guess as far as I'm understanding Hall's understanding of discourse is kind of how discourse is understood within sociology today or it's how I learn about what it means but I think also there has been a habit with associating the word discourse with things like text and speech so I keep repeating this word <laughs> Discourse in sociology is any practice through which individuals imbue reality with meaning. So this can be anything, right? The way we attach meaning to the things around us. Sounds kind of abstract, but he does use this later in very real ways. So all you need to know is it's kind of, it's a way of giving things meaning. Now he says on page 46, quote, discourse, yet by it I mean not a set of textual pyrotechnics, but rather a overall view of human conduct as always meaningful. So he's like essentially saying the same thing as what I was saying. What humans do is meaningful and creating meaning. When you say that, I think of his work in criminology when he speaks about mugging. And um, one of the photographs in his book is of police, black and white police officers wearing those domed hats, white male police officers with the chin strap down. So when a police officer has the chin strap down, it suggests that the reason why they would wear it like that is when they are in a place of disorder. And that chin strap, for me, it's really striking. It brings back memories of my time in the uniform. When I would have to do that, then I would have a baton in my hand. And that's what this picture shows. And it's a picture that suggests there is disorder, there, there is violence, and the police are this authority. That's, one could call it a riot, but on the other hand, looking back at it as we have greater insight, perhaps an uprising, um, perhaps resistance. This is what is interesting about discourse, right? And and so when you're talking about the police, for example, I do not believe this, I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> but some people see the police and would see that chin strap as like 
reinforcing order or good policemen doing their jobs, right? Or like safety in the neighborhood or there's trouble but i'm not in trouble Mm -hmm. you know this used to happen a lot um because i used to live in a pub and so if the police turned up because we were working behind the you know that was a good thing for us yes but for the people in the pub you know who are all like working class people actually they associate the police with bad things so it's the way we understand the things around us and the way we associate meaning coming from our own experiences so yeah yeah, that's that's right. The the idea of a fray, which is a phrase in policing, or it's an offence where people come together and they are violent, some sort of disorder, a fight, should we say? So there's a suspicion when when the police go into the into the pub and see the staff, they are not under suspicion of causing an affray, but the people on the other side of the bar, where drinks are drunk, etc., the working class people. They are the ones under suspicion. They're the ones that are involved in this moving discourse. If we think about then the next word that he uses a lot, which is connected to discourse, which is the word discursive, which basically means the systems and practices through which members deal with behaviour. So if we think about the police example, it's the way people would deal with, say, the police coming into a pub. Do they leave? Do they get out of the way? Do they smile? You know, it's the way people deal with this system of power and the things around it. So, okay, let's start with how he actually uses it. So as far as I'm understanding it, the way he talks about discursive practices is that race is discursive in and of itself. It's the way that it's a system and practice through which people, when we're saying members, it's members of these systems and practices, right? So we're all impacted by understandings of race in our current society, right? And so the way we deal with that knowledge and conduct ourselves is discursive. And so the interesting thing that he gets into later is this idea of the extra discursive. So this gets a bit esoteric, but the extra discursive is that which lies beyond discourse, extending beyond discursive functions. So basically it's beyond our understanding. And he uses this discussion of the extra discursive to defend his comments on race essentially because he brings up like three points of like how people might refute his argument which i thought is very clever it's like almost preparing or like i don't have to write another thing i'm already doing it here you don't need to look anywhere else for it especially because this is a lecture as well so you're um, reacting real time to what people might be thinking and saying which i think is interesting but an example of an extra discursive thought or an extra discursive imagining is is this idea of, okay, what if tomorrow we all woke up with our identity or we all woke up as non-racialized beings? We, we don't exist inside theories of race. Like, it just goes away. And he essentially says, and he draws on um, Judith Butler to do this, and he unpacks this really on page 50, but he basically says that the extra discursive will always be determined by what we can imagine right now and what we know right now and what the discourse is right now. And so his example is, we can't imagine what a non-racialized society would look like because we are living within a racialized society 
And so our imagining of this non-racialized society will always be informed by our understandings of race. And so he basically says you, you'll end up in like this infinite loop. What would be the point in having that discussion? Like it's not useful for us to discuss right now. As you're saying that, I'm looking at his book and what comes to mind is the idea of the identity of black British. Being black British, Stuart Hall says that it's the nation starting to define itself in terms of ethnicity. And I think that he also cites the work of Paul Gilroy and the Black Atlantic and the idea of the African-American, whereas the American is second in the same way that black British is second, but there is this ethnicization of the nation. It was just operating in a discursive way. So to kind of draw and like summarize this bit, he says, and kind of we've spoken about it already, that race is a discursive construct. He says it's on page like 32. He says race is a discursive construct. Let's stop there for now. (laughs) And let's unpack his next kind of bit, which is the signifier and the signified. Now we've already defined this in the Deleuze episode, but if you don't want to wade into Deleuze and Guattari, I wouldn't judge you for, because it's a confusing world. (laughs) I'm going to do the same thing here. And again, same as that Deleuze episode, I'm drawing on an excellent YouTube video called Semiotics Introduction to Cesar, The Signifier and the Signified by Tom Nicholas. Excellent YouTube Mm. video. I love YouTube. (laughs) But basically, and bear with me, it will make sense. (laughs) Uh, semiotics is the study of signs and the sign is something that stands in for something else so words can be considered signs for example if i write down the word dog you're going to imagine something dog-like in your brain right and so essentially me writing down the word dog has evoked the idea of dog in your mind and physical actions can also be signs as well This can also work for things that are more abstract and abstract nouns. For example, anger. So if I say anger, you're going to picture a certain kind of something in your mind, even if it's a bit more abstract than you picturing a dog. And there can also be signs in nature. For example, puddles can equal rain, and you can tell it rained a bit recently, and smoke equals fire. No fire without smoke. (laughs) And so Ferdinand de Saussure in 1916 writes something called The Course in General Linguistics. Um, And so he starts to develop this idea of sign, signifier and signified, which is what particularly the signifier and signified is what Hall is drawing on from a lot. So the sign that I've just been talking about has two elements to it. It has the signifier and the signified. So the signifier is the thing that does the standing in for something else. And the signified is the thing or idea that the person trying to communicate is trying to evoke. So there's no inherent link between the signifier and the signified in his understanding. This gets undone a little bit later but he was interested in how the uses of the letters d-o-g mean dog at least in a in the english language but the the letters themselves d-o-g do not actually have any natural link to that animal other than as a society we have decided that that's what it now means 
also when we refer to dog, we aren't referring to a specific dog. So I've been talking about dogs a lot. You're probably picturing a certain type of dog. What's interesting is it might be a dog that, or a type of dog that you are particularly familiar with. So for example, my parents, I grew up with German Shepherds a lot. So when I picture a dog, I picture a German Shepherd because that's the type of dog that I'm thinking of. What were you thinking of, Devon? <laughs> when you were saying German Shepherd, my my brain was unfortunately was going to um, Hitler's mm-hmm. dog, which was a German Shepherd. I always feel bad when they say German Shepherd because I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the German Shepherds have an unfortunate history. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> oh, dear. But, um, yeah, when we refer to a dog, we aren't referring to a specific dog. We're referring more to this concept of dogginess, right? When describing a particular dog, we're referring to a concept of dogginess that evokes a particular image of a particular dog. And so somebody called Charles Sanders Pierce took Cesar's ideas further and he uses these concepts outside of written or spoken language. So he says, rather than suggesting that the signifier and the signified are never linked, he says actually they can be linked. So he comes up with three things. He comes up with the icon, which is anything with a physical resemblance to the idea of or thing that it's trying to evoke. So if I draw a dog, even if it looks a bit rubbish, you'll probably recognize that I'm trying to draw a dog. (laughs) Icons also remind me of, do you know when you have a stop sign? Like that kind of Mm. iconography is like associated with stopping. The Um, circle with a red cross going through. Yeah. Even though that actually just means nothing. (laughs) We've given it meaning. So the index is a link to the thing that is being evoked by direct relation. So when I said smoke from a fire, you might not necessarily see the fire, but because you're seeing the smoke, you are linking it to the thing that is Mm. creating it. This is also used to describe signs that require a direct link in order to make complete sense. So... For example, when I say me, and you say the word me, they mean different things, essentially. But we're evoking a sense of self. And then symbol is there's no relation between the signifier and signified. So language is a good example of this. And traffic lights are also a good example of this. They are symbols. But basically, red means stop, amber means... Don't go yet. Okay. (laughs) It's a midway... Can't drive. Oh dear, I drive. I think I've failed now. Green means go. Yeah, green means go. But basically, these symbols mean things to us, right? Amber means go with caution. Like caution tape, for example, means like don't pass. And so, understanding how meaning is made through communication is really important. And signs and signifiers and the signified do this. And that's where I'm going to stop with that. As you say that, I'm thinking of the signifier, and my brain is always in the criminology policing world, at least when I'm interacting, unfortunately, uh, my brain is often in the policing realm. So when you say icon and signifier and dog, I think of even if there is a leash or a police officer and a van, the dog doesn't necessarily have to get out. If the van starts to shake or if there's a lot of barking, then it suggests that there's something fierce inside and that you better get out of the way and don't go anywhere near that van because what's going to come out is something with big teeth. More often than not, it will be a German Shepherd or a Rottweiler 
if you're really unfortunate. It's not going to be a Labrador or a Labradoodle unless drugs are involved. But it's usually, as I say, the iconic image is of this German Shepherd and the symbol is the van and it doesn't, the police van, it. the dog doesn't even have to come out in order for people to know that there is trouble inside and they better behave. And so Stuart Hall says that race is understood precisely in terms of metaphor and metonymy. So he's saying basically race becomes, as our main discussion of this chapter, race is a discursive construct, a sliding signifier. And, you know, just a little reminder, the signifier is the thing that does the standing in for something else. So it's referring to something even if we don't necessarily know what that something mm. is. You know what I mean? And so when we say sliding signifier, we also mean floating signifier. As far as I understand it, he uses them both yeah. just the same. He uses them in the same chapter. He just decides to change his mind. Yeah, I think for sliding the time being in this, in this context, they're the same thing. I imagine that he's more discerning later on and that he makes delineations as to what what is the float. So I'm going to read out this long quote, but I think it's helpful to like wrap up kind of all these different terms I've been mm. throwing around. So his main argument in this entire essay, and it's on page 45 at the bottom in the copy we're looking mm. at, he says, I do nevertheless want to advance the scandalous argument that socially, historically, and politically braces a discourse that it operates like a language like a sliding signifier, that its signifiers reference not genetically established facts, but the systems of meanings that have come to be fixed in the classifications of culture, and that those meanings have real effects not because of some truth that inheres in their scientific classification, but because of the will to power and the regime of truth that are instituted in the shifting relations of discourse that such meanings establish with our concepts and ideas in the signifying field. All of that sounds like a lot, I know. <laughs> We're going to unpack it though. I think as you say that, the signifier, again, that the idea of the dog and the van, the German shepherd, if you were to close, if the listeners were to close their eyes and think of a police van without windows, so it's not a transit van, it's much smaller, and it contains a dog, but you can't see the dog. All you can see is this van shaking, but you can hear something inside. Sounds like a German shepherd. Around you, what would you associate with that immediate environment? You wouldn't associate calm, quiet, Sunday afternoon, sipping coffee, you would associate some sort of trouble, disorder, perhaps at night, perhaps there are lots of young people around, perhaps there's lots of shouting, um, there's some sort of violence. It's not people around there having a picnic, sipping wine or drinking hot chocolate. There's something much more visceral, uh, much more palpable going on. This is the signifier that is brought about as a consequence of the interaction between the symbol and the signifier, the icon and the traffic signs. And it's also reminding me, and I know Hall does specific work on this later, of discussions around stereotyping and stereotypes being associated with certain people or certain groups or certain things. That's because when we're talking about these systems of meaning, stereotypes acquire meaning through this discourse, essentially, right? So basically, 
those are just some examples. But the beauty about this concept of race as a sliding or floating signifier and as a discursive construct, and I think construct is also a word we've not really impacted here, it's constructed. It's not fact. Mm. It's not based in any kind of essential truth. It is constructed. And so I lost where I was going. (laughs) I wonder if it's like the construct of the corner shop. Mm -hmm. When you think of the corner shop, what things and images come to mind? Mm -hmm. Um, There are connotations with that. Yeah, exactly. Something like that, right? Like, it's something so abstract. Like, when you break it down to it's like bare essentials, it's very abstract. Mm. And the corner shop is also, as far as I understand it, there are certain, like, British connotations. Absolutely. So, again, something so abstract, you're creating more specific ideas, right? So this is, again, to finish up my sentence, because I remember where I was going, this is the beauty of this concept, because it can be so kind of abstract but so specific at the same time and I think it's really interesting and so to unpack this a little bit more Hall talks a lot about biological essentialism and genetics and the effect it has on race and so to define biological essentialism we've done it a couple of times in previous episodes especially with relation to gender but biological essentialism affects other things as well so it's this idea that all we are Our essential being is based in biology. We are made up of just our biological parts and that is how we gain meaning, right? And when he's talking about genetics as well, he's also talking about things being passed down to us from our predecessors, right? Our family and the people who are related to us, right? And so what he's saying, though, and and what lots of people say is if you solely rely on that essentialist notion, there's really no movement. It becomes this, like, rigid thing, right? And what he's trying to argue is actually race is not some essential thing. It does have movement. It has created meaning through systems of meaning, right? Through discourse, through signifiers, through different things standing in for different things, right? As you say that, I I was at a conference on anti-racism and pedagogy as process at Warwick University and Colwatt Bhopal was speaking about white supremacy culture I think and in the audience it was very diverse but as she spoke there was a white female in the audience and she said she felt guilt that she was acknowledging how there was complicity with whiteness with being white and there was complicity with operating in a system that benefits her white supremacy culture and yet there was other people in this audience where when Colbert was speaking about white supremacy culture their brain was going towards racism and there was on the one hand this subjugatory feeling but on the other hand there was this feeling of guilt and dominance it's really interesting it reminds me of a youtube video i watched a little while ago from somebody called fd signifier so he does loads of youtube videos on black culture especially in america but he's also analyzes like more lefty like liberal stuff put out by white people so one of the things he looked at was bo burnham's i think it's inside is what it's called which i really loved i don't know if you've ever watched it Dippo. Nah. i recommend it i love it it's so good so basically bo burnham's a comedian and he produced this netflix special and he's a white man but he produced this comedy special all about his time inside during covid 
and lots of it is like him having like mental breakdowns and it's all songs right so he writes all these individual songs and you can tell he's also you know he's dealing with the effects of black lives matter right especially on himself as a white man with an audience and so like he he starts the whole thing with this song about <laughs> about whether he should have a voice as a white man or just shut up completely and then he like makes this joke being like no I won't shut up like <laughs> who am I kidding I'm just a silly funny goofy man and so he does all these things there's another one where he sings a song for children about how the world works but um he's got this kind of like sock puppet who begins critiquing like capitalism and colonialism and stuff like that and then there's other bits there's this one where he is talking about cancel culture but he's doing it in the style of these like 80s fitness videos and also there's a lot of religious imagery in there that only increases as like the song goes on and i guess like in my mind the implication is that he's martyring himself by saying oh I've done bad things in my past, but he's like playing on him. But like FD Signifier does this really interesting video that I think people should go watch because it's him thinking about white liberalism and the difficulties with white liberalism now in that we're recognizing, right, things like white supremacy. I won't say who said it, but I was in conversation with a group of academics the other day and one of them, who's a person of color, he was saying, you know, white supremacy is like the worst term we could have like, now that it's gotten out into the mainstream, it's like one of the worst terms we could have come up with because it becomes this like thing we acknowledge, but we don't do anything about. Similar to, we were at a geography thing where it was pointed out that people are doing land I guess affirmations no that's not the right word land Land acknowledgements acknowledgements. (laughs) affirmations (laughs) but it does feel like an affirmation the way it's It's done the way it's read yeah so it land acknowledgements where you say we don't really do it in this country because who would you talk yeah, about yeah we are in the seat of empire to <laughs> form a colony yeah exactly but if you're living it like it happens a lot in australia but it also happens a lot in america like north america for like the same reasons essentially you would say uh, as an academic sitting on this indigenous yes. land and then you would say which indigenous group you were talking about and so like you also get this similar thing right where we were at that geography thing and they were like okay but what now we're just like acknowledging that this is the case but nothing is happening and FD signifier is really interesting because he says I actually feel bad for like white liberal people because he's like and he's speaking as a black man he's like actually like where do you go from here like you you are sat in this place where you acknowledge and I speak as a white woman right I acknowledge I'm doing it as well Right, you end up in this double bind essentially. You you want to acknowledge the difficulties and the pain that you are causing, and you're also part of this system that you didn't necessarily ask to be part of. This is it, exactly. And so, what now? Hmm. Like, where do we go? And the white guilt thing is also just another one of those like. Okay, but what are you doing with that guilt? Are you being politically productive? Are you a social justice person? What are you actually doing that is creating genuine meaning and change? The other thing that's difficult with conversations about race is like thinking intersectionally, like 
Crenshaw talks about, white people are not necessarily always in positions of power, or they're in more positions of power. I'm not I'm not discrediting the position of power that whiteness gives you, but I'm also saying, you know, there's other influences, like if you have a disability or if you're extremely poor, like how much power and energy do you have to create meaningful change? And so, yeah. Is is a um, difficult one, but I think this goes back to something that a friend of mine told me the other day. But when we think about race, and Stuart Hall is specifically talking more so about black people, but about racialized bodies, so people of color. When we think about race, we should also be thinking about whiteness as its own race in need of interrogation, rather than just saying. And we'll kind of end on this part, but rather than just saying, "Oh, that's like a person of color thing," let them do with it and I'm not saying that means entering into conversations that you shouldn't be entering into right uh like let's have a little bit of critical thinking about what we speak up on as you were saying that my my brain was going to especially when you were talking about Bo Burnham and the sock puppet I was thinking of the work of Sylvie Winter and her essay on Franz Fanon it's called towards a sociogenic principle Fanon the puzzle of conscious experience of identity and what it's like to be black And Sylvie Winter in this essay speaks about the idea of sociogenic, which is the third person's reaction to the first person. So this sock puppet's reaction. I think the interesting thing about the sock puppet example, the Bo Burnham thing is clever, right? But it it only goes so far. But the sock puppet is controlled by him, ultimately. (laughs) And it's also controlled by him for a wider audience. So when we're thinking about first person and third person, I think it also gets really interesting there. But going back to biological essentialism and how Hall deals with this and genetics as well, because he's also talking about genetics. So Hall says that he's not going to deny the differences exist. Like if you look at a black person, a white person, there are differences between these people like visually, right? He says essentially difference does exist. He's not refuting that, but he says that the difference is organized and systematized into discourse that allows for difference to acquire meaning that affect the social and cultural realms of existence. So basically, race acquires meaning and difference acquires meaning through discourse. Okay, so the next bit on kind of biological essentialism that I want to talk about, and he says it very briefly, and I I think this is also why he's bringing up history a lot. On page 51, he says, nature always has a history, and basically what is defined as natural is also determined by discourse. So let me unpack this. Basically, biology and science and genetics and nature are commonly understood as fact. Those are things we know. Basically, these were created by human beings. And even the word human being is like taken as this factual statement. Actually, even what is understood to be a human being has been developed by discourse over time. And biology has developed over time through scientific discoveries and things like that. An example that's quite often cited right now is in the area of gender, right? When you think about sex, it's not this binary thing. It's not female and male. There's loads of different types of sex, essentially, 
that can develop in a person's body. Uh, you know, differences in hormones, differences in growth of things, not growth of things. There's intersex people. So our understanding of science, biology, human nature, natural things is only developed by us, right? It's constrained by what we know and what we are allowing us, ourselves to know. And so he talks a little bit later in the essay on like page 62 and 63 about Franz Fanon's epidermalization, which you know more about Fanon's work than me, so I'm gonna let you define it if that's okay. Fanon's work in terms of black skin, white masks. Or... Yeah, yeah, that's what he's talking about. So the idea that, yes, you have black skin, the natural world, or in terms of discourse, doesn't include the black skin with any having any agency. It's the black skin as being something that is navigated around and the person with the black skin navigates, but the person with the white skin negotiates has the power to negotiate. So it's this black skin, white masks. Fanon is talking about how there is this power, this need, this yearning to shed this black skin and to put on a white mask. The power, the experience that comes with having a white partner, for example. Fanon talks about this in one of his chapters at a bit of length. He goes on a bit. Having a white partner will give you access to certain spaces, certain places. You won't necessarily be a space invader. You will have access through your partner into certain spaces and you will you will be less likely to be thought of as someone that is interjecting this space, but you have some sort of legitimate access, some right to mm. be there. Um, so black skin, white masks is, is powerful, but the criticism is that it talks about the black skin. It doesn't necessarily talk about any other pigmentation, but later works do cover that. So Hall talks about this epidermalization alongside the sliding signifier, essentially trying to make space, I guess, for Fanon's work within his own concept and theory. So he basically says that, quote, what looks literally as if it fixes race in all ma its materiality, the obvious visibility of black bodies, is actually functioning as a set of signifiers that direct us to read the bodily inscription of racial difference and thus render it intelligible, end quote. So essentially because we have these um, signifiers, which is these things that stand in for other things, that gives us systems of meaning to read other bodies and people and racialized bodies and racialized beings, essentially. And I've said it a few times already, but he does talk a lot about race and racism as this kind of system of meaning. So he says on page 33, uh, quote, I want to insist that hateful as racism may be as a historical fact, it is nevertheless also a system of meaning, a way of organising and meaningfully classifying the world. So essentially, race and racism become a system through which we create meaning and discourse about people. And quite literally, you know, uh, I spoke about it in the Du Bois episode a little bit, but I taught on this module 
that was all about thinking through what human nature was, understood to be as from the Renaissance to Freud. And when explorers from Europe, uh, they were going to undiscovered, quotation, quotation, undiscovered lands, and they were seeing people and people of colour, they then, they had this understanding of what a civilised society looked like, right? And to be a civilised society, you would take part in agriculture and you would also create a system of marketization, essentially, a way of buying and spending. And so this was their system of saying, these people are not civilised because they do not meet our barrier of what it means to be human nature and, and what it means to be human. Because alongside this kind of pyramid, they also had things like trees and plants and animals. And so you get this rejection of giving this notion of human to people of colour, right? It, it's already created this system of meaning. It's really interesting to read more about this. I'll see if I can find some sources from the module I looked at. But basically, it's interesting because you see Europeans like basically panic because they meet people that look like them but not really. And so they're trying to formulate their own humanness by othering other people. So it's really, when he's talking about a system of meaning, that system of meaning, the reason the module goes from the Renaissance to Freud becomes also integrated into science when we think about eugenics, when we think about, what's the one where they measure the brain? Oh, phrenology, is that Yeah, what? phrenology. Science has a long history with like racist yeah. stuff. Cesare Lombroso is one of them. Um, so now I want to kind of think about this idea of having a lived experience of dealing with the reality of racism, but also having to partake in academic discussions of concept of race. So like Hall says quite a few times, like things that gave me this vibe, because he's also talking about Du Bois mm. also living through a very particular time. And, and I do recommend looking at the last episode to really understand the history behind that. But Du Bois is like living through a very particular time and so is Hall. And so he's trying to understand, okay, I'm being treated a certain way and I'm being told I am this because I was born like this. And so he's trying to map that onto academic concepts of race. Where I really felt this, I guess, is on page 71. He says, of course, the discourse of racism operates in a world of Manichean opposites, them and us, primitive and civilized, light and dark, which creates a seductive black and white symbolic universe. But after a while, its reductive simplicity itself becomes problematic because of its banality. Once you have unpacked its simplistic logic, you can struggle against it, but can you really spend a lifetime studying it? And so it happens to lots of people I know, but like this theorizing about self whilst also trying to deal with academia. Yeah. It's something that John Solomos also <laughs> speaks about, is this over-theorization of race and racism. And John expresses similar frustration, saying that we've got to get away from over-theorizing race and move on to something that is more complex or that academics have this tendency to over-theorise. But I wonder, as Stuart Hall is talking about the lived experience, when I looked at Souls and then more recently looked at the Crisis Journal, and yes, Du Bois was editor of that, but in order to understand the lived experience, 
what I would suggest listeners do have a browse through the crisis journal which is available online it's archived now so there is it's run out of copyright and you just go through the journals and see what is written and what you'll notice is that there are opinions and there are reading lists in this journal and the opinions are expressed by the readers that will write in to the editor and make notes and what you hear is about is the problems that emancipation is starting to have from the perspective of the readers and some of those readers I anticipate will be black and that they will have lived experience or they may be benevolent and very sympathetic to the cause and supportive of eradicating this well this systematic process of enslavement. One of the people that write this a letter to the editor suggest is how do we deal with all of these people that have been recognised as being human? Should we not just educate them before they are given freedom? Is one of the questions put out saying that we would have less crime if this group of people were educated before they were granted freedom. What he's questioning is whether the, the humanness has to be educated into these people that are human or whether they possess inherent human worth and dignity, whether their education is something that they have to grasp and something that only privilege grants. So there is this lived experience going on. Once you start to add lived experience into the concept and construct of race and racism is when I think you then start to have this very rich discourse and discursive element that's going on because once you have lived experience then it goes much deeper then you go into the intergenerational the intragenerational aspects you go into the signifier and the floating signifier and the signified and the discursive and all of a sudden these terminologies start to take on a much richer meaningful understanding so I think the reason why Hall is looking at Du Bois is because Du Bois charts the trajectory and the processes that are going on with black folk with the souls of black folk as they are trying to negotiate but more often than not navigating their way into society yeah i think he's also like he basically kind of tracks throughout this du bois's difficulties with dealing with this difference with acknowledging okay we have not even very far away from du bois's lifetime Mm. right been living through this history of enslavement this recent emancipation all this kind of stuff right and you know we spoke about it in the last episode but just because something is put into law doesn't mean there's a sudden social change overnight you know like what you were saying with people writing in and saying shouldn't we educate people before emancipation takes place right like he is dealing with this in his lifetime trying to deal with difference also being somewhat proud of this difference when he's talking about is it the color line where Mm. he says I both exist as an American, but I also exist as like an African-American or a black man, right? These two things like push and pull Mm, against mm. each other and I don't want to let either one go. And so I think he's also drawing on and trying to understand where Du Bois was kind of having difficulties moving past a certain kind of thinking, right? And like you said, like charting where we are now. Mm. And so the last kind of big concept that I want to talk about is the role of power and the relation of power. 
And when we talk about power, like in a previous episode, we're bringing up Foucault. He's everywhere. I told you. He makes his way in. He is here to stay. (laughs) So Foucault develops something called power knowledge. So it's written in the text as power dash knowledge, but I've also seen it written as like power slash knowledge. And it's this idea that power is constituted through accepted forms of knowledge and scientific understanding and quote unquote truth. And so when I say truth, it's not truth as in this kind of objective truth. It's this truth as a constructor and construction of power itself. Paul uses power knowledge and difference. So he adds difference on to essentially expand Foucault's theory to say, like what we were saying before about how difference exists but it is organised and systematised in ways that allow difference to acquire certain meaning. So in the same way that power constitutes and is constituted through knowledge and scientific understanding in this notion of a more subjective truth, difference is also doing the same thing. And so when we're talking about power as well, and you know, we've kind of touched on it a little bit in this episode about these relations of power. When we are talking about racism, for example. Racism, in the way that we understand it today, is defined and gains meaning from our relations to each other and our relationships to each other and the structures we are born into and continue, whether willingly or unwillingly, right? When you mention power, knowledge, difference, I think of the discrepancy and the racialized awarding gap in universities and when we look at power knowledge difference think about scripts and exam papers or essays being marked they're marked blind yet there is a statistically significant difference in terms of undergraduate awards for firsts two ones and two twos based along racial lines now one could argue that that's just happenstance but when it's statistically significant, that suggests that there's something much more going on when people of a racialized group are less likely to get a particular classification. In this instance, it's first-class degrees. So is there a race, when the, the question arises, is there a power knowledge difference? On the one hand, one could argue, oh, well, this is a deficit problem and that we need to coach people how to write proper essays. But as Du Bois has written over a hundred years ago, souls of black folk are not deficient. So when there is a power knowledge difference, are we talking about something that has become naturalised? And what does this formulation, how does this come about? Is there a pernicious use of language? Finishing off then, is another text that we read was from Lesbach and Maggie Tate. And Lesbach, who will probably read more of Bach's work in the future, but Lesbach is the head of sociology at the University of Glasgow and was a youth worker in London in the 1980s, so this kind of shapes the work that they do. 
and they've previously taught and worked at Goldsmiths and Burbeck College London and they look at sociology of race, racism, ethnicity, multiculturalism, urban culture, music and sport. And Maggie Tate was a PhD student I believe at the time of this writing but received her PhD from the sociology department at the University of Texas at Austin in 2016 and she does like work on qualitative methods, visual studies and urban sociology. So they write this piece in 2015 called For a Sociological Reconstruction, W.E.B. Du Bois, Stuart Hall and Segregated Sociology. And the main thing that they are specifically talking about is how in our contemporary time discussions of race, kind of like what I was saying earlier, get segregated to certain parts of like departments to certain people and there's essentially this notion that white sociologists don't want to deal in discussions of race or don't find discussions of race theoretically helpful for any of their own knowledge so you get this like segregation in sociology and it's really interesting again when you think about things like the way modules are structured so I see so many modules where there's a broad context being covered but the way they structure things is they do a week on gender and they do a week on sexuality and they do a week on race which is like really difficult when it comes to like getting students to think intersectionally and how all these things impact upon each other but also you're only giving a week to one thing there's also like when you think about decolonizing the curriculum or inserting more voices of color into curriculums usually they'll just like add one or two texts on race without actually like really thinking about it you know what i mean yeah it's almost replicating the enlightenment way of thinking within the way modern sociology is conceived and taught which is sad and it doesn't bode well if we are going to be talking about race one week gender the next etc blah 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 under the misguided misconception and misunderstanding that all of these intersectionalities impact identity in the same way and they don't they are inherently different and there are many facets and they can impact identity if we are talking about identity in very different ways very varied ways and as i think about that i i think of the work of sylvie winter and her work on class and race they both impact um, people in different ways we read it kind of as like an ending piece to this text just to get you to think about the ways in which i guess stuart hall's conception of race and race as a sliding signifier or a floating signifier you know we've related i guess throughout this conversation his concepts to other areas of study so i guess what we're saying is like read more Stuart hall read more people re-familiarize yourself with these works or familiarize yourself or if you don't want to read there's like a billion youtube videos yeah podcasts like our podcast and <laughs> <Yeah, absolutely. laughs> listen to our podcast <laughs> but essentially don't like say that this work isn't relevant when actually that might not be the case right it might be relevant it might be interesting it's important to know as well especially in our current time <laughs> so to finish off let's talk about permissible beauty 
Okay, cool. As we said at the top of the episode, me and Dipak went to Tate, Britain, to go see the Queer and Now Festival. A really interesting film screening that we went to, which was the first film screening within the UK, was a project called Permissible Beauty. And if they ever release it online, I'll, I'll link it down below, but if they actually ever release it online, I just highly, highly recommend. Like, it was so interesting. But essentially... It is a project and a portraiture project that responds to the absence of black queer visibility in the story of Britain and British heritage. And so they think about British black and queer identities. And so it takes place at Hampton Court Palace and uh, Hampton Court Palace, there's a load of portraits called the Windsor Beauties. And essentially it is just like white women in all these like fancy portraiture essentially exactly what you're picturing if you're picturing like an old picture of a woman (laughs) or like an old painting they are really beautiful I'm undermining them a bit but like using these to unpack what we mean by beautiful and what beauty means and how that relates to black queer people and there is a photographer Robert Taylor who takes these photographs of a bunch of people and they're like drag artists and queer people and there's like a black and white photograph and then there's like a portraiture type photograph and so those are really interesting and then there is performer and art historian David McAlmont who is talking throughout the piece in this like very Shakespearean type speech essentially but it's done in this like really clever way so if it ever comes out i highly recommend but it kind of relates to what we're talking about today and when we're talking about unpacking and reconstituting systems of meaning and what we understand beauty to be but yeah different you were there as well what do you yeah it was moving it was moving because i was seeing people that were expressing themselves from within and it was um it was powerful it was powerful because it felt like they were being themselves. They were expressing their creativity, their artistic identity, but also what was within their soul. They were expressing that. And so I think it's perfect that you're introducing, speaking about this and in this way, because it's expressing what black folk, how they conceive beauty, how they conceive of identity and how they express beauty and how it's perceived by others on the one hand I think one of them spoke about ugly beauty and it was moving it was almost um, I wouldn't say it was healing but it was it exposed how those wounds appear and how they are dealt with and expressed um, with art so there's these costumes that they were wearing were elaborate they were intricate they were innovative they were creative but there was also with gender there was this idea of gender that was being queered and expressed in a non-binary way which was good to see on the other side what i noticed was that we have hampton court palace which is the heart the embodiment the symbolic representation of empire within its vessel you have this expression of permissible beauty so what i was thinking as i was watching this this documentary is that it's permitted this 
beauty is permitted within the umbrella, within the confines, within the curated confines of Hampton Court being the the heart, the embodiment, the new representation of, of empire. Even though it was built a long time ago, it survives now. It's it was this room was done up, it was restored. You could see who had been painted. It wasn't black folks, it was white folks that were painted in elaborate costumes. But within these walls, within this vessel, you have permissible beauty. Permitted by whom? The last other thing I want to shout out, if you want to know more about Stuart Hall, but don't want to like read a billion books or other things, and I have some sources down below or in the description, wherever it may be, is the documentary The Stuart Hall Project, which was from 2013, that covers kind of the life and times of Stuart Hall and cultural studies and uh, the new left. So it's really worth checking out if you want to know more. But before we go, Dipak, do you have anything to plug? Okay, anything that I'm doing? Oh, I'm doing a conference in Bristol on the lived experience of policing and identity and queered uniforms. So um, we have the International Autoethnographic Conference in Bristol, and I'm presenting. Amazing, amazing. Okay, so we're going to leave this episode today. I will see you in the next one with Paula. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Thank you. I don't know why I'm waving. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Theoryish. We really appreciate it and would love to hear your thoughts. Check out our Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitter at theoryish underscore pod for up-to-date information and please rate follow and leave a review wherever you're listening to the podcast if you're interested in finding anything we have mentioned in the episode please check our show notes or description to find more details you can also contact us at theoryishpodcast at gmail.com see you next time goodbye